Um, welcome back to Systematic Theology. Uh, some of y'all welcome for the first time. This is uh, going to be a really fun session for y'all because we're just doing a review, um, a crash course of what all the things we've talked about this semester. Um, and it's going to be really fast-paced, and there's a lot to talk about. So this is our last week to meet together and discuss systematic theology. We've covered some incredible um, content and some huge concepts uh, in God's Word. I hope that you've learned a lot and grew this semester. I know I certainly did um, as I was preparing and listening to Sam and Cliff. Um, it's been a joy to help teach this class, and I know that Sam and Cliff would say the same thing, um, even though they're slacking and are not here. Um, just kidding. <laughs> so I did want to take a second and announce the topics for the next round of equipping classes. Um, let me pull it up real quick. Okay, so here are the next equipping classes, the next round. They're six weeks long. Uh, this, so this was 14. Um, these ones are just in the summer, six weeks. They start uh, June 5th, which I think is next, yeah, next Sunday. Um, first, we've got uh, Fear of Man, class on Fear of Man, taught by Wes Burgess, Jeremy Moeller, and Sam Connect in the chapel. So that'll be right over there in the chapel. Um, and then in here, this is fellowship, Paul, right? Okay, I should know that. In here, we'll be discipling, um, so the job of every believer to help others know, love, and follow Christ. Um, and that'll be taught by Ryan Boudreau and Evan Smith. And then in Heritage Hall, which is, I believe, right there, um, Meeting with God will be taught by our very own Frank Hannon and Mario Moore. Frank, do you want to give like a 15-second preview of that class? Yeah, we're just going to be talking about the high privilege it is to meet with God to start your day or at some significant point in the day. You know, a lot of people have heroes, people they'd love to hang out with, but we get to meet with God, mm. which far trumps any of those others. That's great. Yeah, so those are all, I'm sure, going to be great classes. Um, so, yeah, if you have any questions about that, feel free to ask me afterward. Um, so in Systematic 1, last semester, um, we talked about these topics, um, and we are not going to talk about them today, but just so we're all, you know, total systematic theology, one and two, here are the things we've talked about. So in the first semester, doctrine of the word, attributes of God, creation, doctrine of humanity or sin, doctrine of providence, um, and then the person of Christ and the work of Christ. That was all covered in systematic one. Um, if you're interested in learning about any of those topics, uh, you can find the lessons from last semester online on our podcast, and um, I did a review of them as well at the beginning of this class, uh, if you're looking for a shorter overview of those topics. Today, however, we're going to review uh, everything that we covered in Systematic 2 so far. Um, so can anybody list out or name any of the topics that we covered in Systematic 2? Yes. How did you know that? That's incredible. Um, yes, so they're on your handout. Person of the Holy Spirit, work of the Holy Spirit, doctrine of salvation, doctrine of the church, um, and eschatology. So today I'm going to spend time reviewing each of these topics. Um, this is by far the longest lesson I've ever written, so I'm going to try to move very quickly. Um, and I'm going to try to spend more time on the topics that were 
earlier in the semester, at the beginning of the semester, and less on the things that we just covered um, in the last two weeks, like eschatology. So eschatology will be the shortest here. Um, Sam did a great job just so recently going over those. So this is going to be very similar to the first review that we did. Um, it's essentially going to be a crash course reviewing each of these topics. So we don't have a ton of time to spend on each one, but we're going for breadth instead of depth this morning. Um, so this review is going to be great if you missed any of the individual sections of the class um, or if you don't remember certain aspects of a section that we talked about. Um, it'll also be great if you've been here every week and if you think you already know all of this. It will still be good for you. Um, as I was beginning to prepare this, I realized that reviews or just like going over things over and over and over again, hello, is a very uh, Christian thing to do. It's a Christian practice to review things and go over them over and over and over again. Um, one thing I've noticed as Natalie and I have been reading through scripture this year is just how often the Lord repeats himself in scripture. Um, so huge chunks of Deuteronomy are just recounting all that Israel went through up to that point, even though you just read all of it, uh, then you review all of it. The Samuels, the Kings, and the Chronicles all kind of intertwine and repeat stories. Even though you were paying attention the first time, the Lord repeats himself. Why do you think that the Lord repeats himself and gives us, like, reviews in his word? Yeah. Yeah, it's because it's good for us and because we're forgetful people. Um, so we need the repetition. Even think about the Gospels. Like, there are four Gospels repeating the stories of Jesus' life. We need the repetition. We need reviews. Um, the Bible proves this. So that's also why we don't just read the Bible one time and then we're good and we call it. Um, we keep reading it because there's always more we can learn about God. Always. Um, so I'd encourage you to not tune out any of these topics um, because for all of us, we can continue to learn about the Lord, even in subjects where we feel like we're the expert. So after each section of this review, I'll leave a brief time for questions. Um, if you have any, I'd be happy to answer them without attempting to not fall into any major heresy. I'm okay with minor heresy, but major I'll try to avoid. Um, so let's dive right in, and we'll start talking about the person of the Holy Spirit. Brought a key line, LaCroix, this morning. It's incredible. All right. Sam kicked off the semester teaching us on the person of the Holy Spirit. So who is the Holy Spirit? Um, in many churches today, clear teaching on the person and work of the Holy Spirit is desperately needed. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does he do? Uh, like all of these topics, we take Scripture as our final authority um, on the matter, and Scripture has a lot to say about the Holy Spirit, who he is, and what he does. So first, we learned the Holy Spirit is God. He has divine attributes, he does divine work, and he's identified explicitly in Scripture as God. Um, so I'm going to read some scripture here that support each of these statements. Um, again, just at the rate that we have to go, I'm just going to say the reference and then read it. If we like all tried to turn there for each reference, we wouldn't get out of here till noon. So I am going to give you the reference. You can write it down if you want, and then I'll just read it on my fancy phone Bible. All right. First, the Holy Spirit possesses divine attributes. Uh, Psalm 139, 7 through 10. Psalm 139, 7 through 10, says this. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. 
If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So you can't flee from the Spirit's presence. That's a divine attribute um, of the Spirit, according to Psalms. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11 says this, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So the spirit searches the very depths of God because, again, he is God. Um, the Holy Spirit also does divine work. So John 3, 5 through 6. John 3, 5 through 6 says this. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born of the spirit. This is a divine work done by the spirit. And then scripture identifies the spirit as God explicitly. Um, Acts 5, 1 through 4. Um, so this is not the point of this story in Acts 5, but it's definitely there, uh, and you'll see it here. Acts 5, 1 through 4 says this. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So in verse 3, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then later in verse 4, you have not lied to man, but to God. Um, the Holy Spirit is God. So hopefully you are convinced of that. Um, one other thing that the scripture is clear on, though, is not only is the Holy Spirit God, uh, but the Holy Spirit is also distinguished, uh, distinct from the Father and Son, yet equal with the Father and Son. So even thinking about the Great Commission, what name are we to baptize those in who come to know Christ? Father. Yeah. So it's all of them, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and then finally, about the person of the Holy Spirit. We learned that the person of the Holy Spirit is personal. So it's not, he's not an it. Um, it's a he. He's a he. <laughs> um, so we talked about his personal pronouns and his personal activities. So the Holy Spirit, he, him. Um, that's a joke, just so everybody's clear. But the Holy Spirit is a person. Um, it's not an it. So we should refer to him as him, not it. Um, the Spirit also uses personal pronouns like me or I in several places. So in Acts 10, he says, I have sent them to you. Um, Acts 13, set apart for me. So the Holy Spirit is a person. Um, and he does personal activities. So here's a few examples of those. Appealing to the saints to pray, Romans 15. The Spirit appeals to the saints to pray. Teaching us things of the future through his word, 1 Timothy 4. Uh, he speaks to the churches in uh, those opening chapters of Revelation. He teaches us what we ought to say in the hour of persecution, according to Luke 12. 
um, and he brings to remembrance things that we've learned, John 14. So the Holy Spirit is a personal being with personal actions. He is God, and yet he's distinct from the Father and the Son. Any questions on the person of the Spirit or anything somebody wants to add on the person of the Spirit before we move on? Now we're moving quick. Uh, work of the Holy Spirit is the next section. So after we spent a week on the person of the Spirit, we then spent three weeks discussing the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, so first, Sam did a great job uh, leading us in a discussion on the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. What was the Holy Spirit's work in the Old Testament? As we talked about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, um, we noted that the Holy Spirit clearly worked differently, in a sense, in the Old Testament than he does in the New Testament and today. Um, so on the whole, generally speaking, the Spirit's activity in the Old Testament was enigmatic, sporadic, selective, and external. Um, in other words, we have experienced a very different outpouring and indwelling of the Spirit than even the prophets did in the Old Testament. Numbers eleven twenty nine says, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. So there's this hope in the Old Testament of a day that might come, that will come, uh, where God will put his spirit in, his, in all his people, that all of us would be like prophets. Um, but the Old Testament never speaks of the Holy Spirit indwelling believers um, in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, God's dwelling is external. It's in the tabernacle or it's in the temple. Um, it's not in the hearts of his people as it is today. It's very different. In the Old Testament, the Spirit empowers believers, um, but not equally or indefinitely. You can think of times when the Holy Spirit empowers believers in the Old Testament. It was also predominantly reserved for leaders um, and not for everybody. But again, there's this hope that one day the Spirit would indwell all believers. Um, and a great passage you can look at in the Old Testament is Ezekiel 36. Um, Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, which says this. It's a prophecy in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So God promises that this day is coming, um, that his spirit will be put in us. If you're in Christ today, you're a living fulfillment of this promise. You have the spirit uh, that they longed for. Jeremiah 31 is also really compelling on this. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Um, so Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Praise God. Part of what makes the new covenant new and different from the old is the indwelling of the Spirit, the law being written on the hearts of God's people. So, friends, we are living in a day that Moses and the prophets longed for. God's law written on our hearts. God himself causing us to walk in his statutes. So there's a lot of messed up stuff in the world today. But praise God for the time we live in, that we have the Spirit. Um, So that's work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Then we touched on the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ, in the person of Christ. Um... So how did Christ and the Holy Spirit interact when he was on earth? Um, First, Christ was actually conceived by the Holy Spirit. According to Luke 1, 35, the Spirit um, is the agent that, yeah, led to Christ's conception. Um, Then we see the Spirit descend like a dove in Jesus' baptism. Um, And we actually have all three members of the Trinity in this picture in Jesus' baptism. So the Son is being baptized. uh, The Spirit descends like a dove. And the Father speaks and says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus then, filled with the Spirit, goes immediately from there to be tempted in the wilderness um, by Satan, but succeeds then where Adam and Israel failed. Um, And then we see the Spirit in Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Um, I think the most clear example of this is Romans 8, 11, where it says explicitly that the Spirit raised Christ from the dead. Um, and also dwells within us. The same spirit that raised Christ from the, dwe- from the dead dwells within us. So it's actually the spirit's work to raise Christ from the dead. And then we spent uh, a good amount of time talking about the Holy Spirit at work in us, in us as Christians. So where did the spirit descend in mass on Christians first? Yeah. The day of Pentecost in uh, Acts 2, Acts 2, 1 through 12, which is actually also the reversal of the Tower of Babel. Um, so there they tried to build a tower to heaven, and uh, God, in, in their pride they did, and God split them up and confused their languages. Now he's bringing all peoples back together, and everyone can understand the message of the gospel at Pentecost. Um, so the effects of sin are being reversed as the Spirit is poured out. Um, And you have this reversal of the Tower of Babel at the day of Pentecost. We talked about some benefits to the believer um, of having the Holy Spirit. So regeneration is a huge benefit of the Spirit. The Spirit gave us new life, opened our eyes to see the beauty of the gospel. Um, So in order for our heart of stone to be replaced with a heart of flesh, the Spirit had to act. He had to do work, um, and he did. So just as the Spirit gave life at the beginning of creation, um, he now gives life to believers, the new creations in Christ that are being made. And then we continued on in week two of the work of the Holy Spirit, talking about, again, the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And we talked about some signs of this regeneration. What are some signs that you've been regenerated? Yeah, what are some signs that you have this regeneration? Yeah.
Yeah, so conviction over sin and like a determination to repent and turn away. Yeah, it's good. What's up? Yeah, definitely. An increasing love for God. Absolutely. Yeah, the fruit of the Spirit being played out in your own life. All really good. Um, so the three, I think we did, yeah, we talked about three specifically, and you guys are already hitting on them. Um, but first, intellectual enlightening. So we now know the truth that we didn't used to know as the truth, and the Lord opened our eyes. And when we were regenerated, uh, one sign that we have the Spirit is that we know the gospel is truth, and we love it as truth. Um, you can look to 1 John 2.20 for that. Second, um, and we kind of hit on this already too, but liberation of the will. So the Lord has liberated us uh, and made us able to follow him um, and to say no to sin. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 is very clear that we were dead, but God has made us alive. So we were incapable of following Christ. Um, but the Spirit gave us new life and ears to hear and a heartbeat um, and feet that want to respond to this call, want to walk in righteousness. The Spirit liberates our wills, frees us up so that we actually are able to follow Christ. And then third, a third sign of regeneration, um, cleansing and renewal. So 1 Corinthians 6, 11, the Spirit is the one who washes, sanctifies, and justifies. Um, the Spirit cleanses us, and we are clean, as Ezekiel 36 gets at. And we covered more uh, works of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. So regeneration, certainly, and then y'all were hitting on some of these as well, too. Um, conviction. So I'm going to read John 16, 7 through 11. John 16, 7 through 11. Okay, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So Jesus claims it's actually better for him to depart from his disciples. Um, that we might have the Spirit, and that the Spirit will convict when he gets here. So part of the Spirit's work is conviction. Um, this is also why it's a little silly to think, like, I just wish I had lived in the time of Jesus and seen, just been around him and seen these miracles. Jesus himself claims it's better that he goes, that we might have the Spirit. Um, it's just unbelief if we don't believe that that's true. So... Remember, on the topic of conviction, um, conviction is not just feeling bad. It's not just feeling guilty um, over your sin. True biblical conviction is acting on that in repentance and faith. Um, that's true spirit-given conviction. And we see this really clearly just actually following Pentecost in Acts 2. So Acts 2, 37 to 38 says this. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So they're convicted. And then they ask, What shall we do? Action. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
So just after Pentecost, the Spirit convicts these men of wrongdoing, and we know it's genuine conviction because they know they need to change something. Um, They need a Savior, they need help, and they want to take action to combat this sin. Because the Spirit brings conviction, we talked about this as well, it's not primarily our job to bring conviction. In fact, we can't bring conviction, um, which takes a whole lot of pressure off of our evangelism when we're talking to people. God has to move the heart of the hearer. That's not something that we can do. It's not our job. So, of course, we contextualize the message. We plead fervently um, with a sinner to repent, but we ultimately recognize it's not our job to make them see the truth. Um, it, it has to be the Holy Spirit's work. So there's conviction. We talked about union with Christ, the work of the Spirit to bring us into union with Christ. So no longer does Christ merely dwell among us as he did with the disciples, but he now dwells in us through the Spirit. Um, again, this is why, yeah, it's a little silly to think, I just wish I had been there, seen Jesus in the flesh. It would have been so much better. Um, I know I've thought things like that before, but again, Jesus himself says it's better that he leaves and gives us the Spirit. So if we trust his word, um, it's better that he's in us now than that he would simply be among us. Um, We learned also that the gospel is the key to why we can even have union with Christ or access to union with Christ. So our sin created a separation between us and God, one that we could never overcome. Um, But praise God for Jesus, who came to take God's wrath for us um, and for our sin on the cross. If we repent and believe in him, he has reconciled that gap between us and God and has made us unified with himself. So if you don't know this, Jesus, um, please come talk to me afterward. would be happy to chat with you. Um, and today is the day of salvation. So would highly recommend repenting. <laughs> um, the Spirit then applies what the Son accomplished, um, and we get into sanctification. So sanctification, another work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. Sanctification is the ongoing process of becoming more like Christ, um, and it's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. So we play both an active role and a passive role in sanctification. There's a passive role in which it's just happening to us naturally, and there's an active role in which we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's the Lord who works within us. Um, and the result of God's power working powerfully through his sanctifying spirit is what, what uh, Alex mentioned earlier, a fruit-filled life. So if you're bearing no fruit as a Christian, you don't know the Holy Spirit. You don't know the Lord. Uh, The Spirit empowers us to bear fruit, and we bear the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So ask yourself if you're growing in these things. Um, And if you know the Lord, if you're being sanctified, um, you should be growing in these things. There's some pretty terrifying imagery of not bearing fruit in the New Testament. Uh, It's all very negative. So it's important to know that if you know the Spirit, you will bear his fruit. It's not perfect. You're not going to be perfectly patient, but you should see yourself growing in these things. The fourth work of the Spirit, intercession. So the Spirit intercedes in prayer on our behalf. Romans 8.26 says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. 
We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Um, it goes on to say that the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. So the great grace of the Spirit's ministry here is that when we're too weak to speak, the Spirit speaks for us. When human words aren't enough to express our anguish or fear or sorrow, the Spirit groans on our behalf with groans that words cannot express to the Father. In other words, because of the Spirit, God the Father knows exactly how you feel when you pray, even if you can't tell him how you feel. And he actually knows it better than you know it. Um, and he knows better than you do how to care for you in your weakness. You can trust that the Lord hears your prayers even when you can't form the words you want to express. And you can trust that he knows best how to respond to those prayers. So praise God for the work of the Spirit in interceding. Fifth, the Spirit gives assurance. Part of the work of the Holy Spirit is uh, giving believers assurance. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The Spirit testifies that we are God's children. So we learn that we don't have assurance because we necessarily feel it all the time. Um, we have assurance because of things that are unchanging. So God's promises in Scripture, the finished work of Christ on the cross, the evidence of God's work within us, these things give us assurance. Um, so there might be times in your life where you're not experientially aware of the Spirit's presence. Um, but the Lord has promised never to leave us or forsake us, and he will not take his spirit from his children. So this is very good news for those who struggle with assurance. And we talked about the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. So a lot of this is individually focused, but what about in the life of, like, the whole church? First, the Spirit inspired Scripture. Um, the Bible is the Spirit's work. It's the Spirit's words. This inerrant book um, that we hold above all other authorities, it's, it's his book. It's his word. Um, and as a church, we hold it as the final authority. Second, the Spirit actually raises up elders and pastors. Um, Acts 20, 28 directly connects the raising up of leaders to the Holy Spirit's work. Um, so we can be thankful for godly leaders because of the Spirit. The Spirit actually raised them up. Um, it also means that if you want to lead a church or be a pastor or an elder, um, recognize the weight of that. If you actually are ever called to be a pastor or elder, you're supposed to feel some of the weight of the Holy Spirit did this work to raise me up. I don't want to squander this. Um, and then third, the Holy Spirit strengthens and encourages the church. Um, the Spirit encourages the church to press on. Acts 9, 31. The Holy Spirit gives us strength as a church and encouragement as a church. Um, so after we talked about all those things, um, we kind of concluded that those are the primary works of the Spirit. These are the things that are super clear in Scripture. Um, and then in week three, we got into some things that are a little fuzzier and um, have been taken to mean different things throughout church history. So we talked, for example, about baptism in the Holy Spirit. What is baptism in the Holy Spirit? Um, we learn there are four main ways the phrase baptized in the Holy Spirit has been thought of in church history. Um, again, I got to just like plow through these. Um, so I'd encourage you to talk to me after if you have more questions um, or go back and listen to Work of the Holy Spirit Part 3 if you have questions about these things. 
Um, so first view of baptism in the Holy Spirit. There's a view that says baptism in the Holy Spirit and conversion are two totally separate things. They happen at different times. Um, this is the Pentecostal view. Um, and basically we learned this is scripturally lacking and it stands against 1900 years of church history. Um, then there's a view that these events are the same thing, that conversion and baptism in the Holy Spirit are the same thing. They, they mean the exact same thing. Then there's a view that says they're separate things, but they happen at the same time. So they're two different events, but they happen at the same time. And then there's a fourth view that they're separate things and that baptism in the Holy Spirit is meant to empower for ministry. Um, so you'd find good and godly people on many sides of this argument. Um, again, my personal view is that conversion and baptism in the Holy Spirit are separate things but happen at the same time. Um, I think that's faithful to the text. Um, but yeah, got to keep moving. So that's baptism in the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit. We talked about that next. What does the phrase being filled with the Holy Spirit actually mean in Scripture? So first view on this, again, is the Pentecostal view. Um, they think this means speaking in tongues. This is lacking, to say the least. 1 Corinthians actually says explicitly that not every Christian will speak in tongues. Um, and even if we were all to speak in tongues, uh, the way that Pentecostals practice speaking in tongues is most often not the way we see it practiced in Scripture. Um, then for those second two groups in the baptism of the Spirit section, they would say that being filled with the Holy Spirit is kind of basic empowerment um, for ministry and the Christian life. Again, this is where I would certainly align myself. Um, according to this view, being filled with the Holy Spirit often results in just increased sanctification, um, increased power for ministry, and it's usually being filled with the Holy Spirit is a result of the normal means um, of grace that God has provided for our spiritual growth. So prayer, reading the Bible, going, gathering um, with a local church. It seems to me a really good and easy connection to connect reading the Bible with being filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, if I wanted to be filled with an author like C.S. Lewis and I wanted to talk and act like him, I'd probably read a lot of C.S. Lewis. Um, the same has to be true of the Spirit. If we want to be filled with the Spirit, praying that that would happen as we read the very books that the Spirit inspired seems to be a good way to do that. Um, so one thing to just ask yourself about this is, how often do you pray that you would be filled with God's Spirit? Um, that is not a Pentecostal thing to do. That's a biblical thing to do. So how often do you pray that you would be filled with God's Spirit um, to fight sin, to have power for ministry? How often do you do that? Have you ever done that? Um, and then the third <clears throat> kind of fuzzier thing we talked about, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, some of the key headlines from that section in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We learn that gifts are meant to build up the church. That's why God gives gifts, not to build up the individual. Um, Ephesians 4, 11 to 16 makes that clear. There also seems to be a priority on uh, word-related gifts in the New Testament. We learned also these gifts are given by God who gives as he wills. So some gifts to some, some gifts to others. Um, and then we learned that love is the guiding principle behind all of these um, gifts. So 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 make this very clear. Paul rebukes the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13 because gifts are not supposed to be used to make names for ourselves. Um, they're supposed to be used to love others and make much of God. And then we briefly touched on 
cessationism and continuationism. Um, so do these gifts, have they ceased, these miraculous gifts, um, have they ceased, like speaking in tongues, um, or do they continue? Once again, good and godly people disagree on this issue. Um, cessationists believe that these gifts have ceased, and there's a spectrum of belief there, and then continuationists believe that these gifts continue, and again, there's this spectrum of belief there. Um, it seems that UBC members seem to lean toward cessationism, um, but I'm sure you could find continuationists who are members of our church. Um, this is another example, I think, of where we can disagree well with one another uh, and show the world what it's like to disagree in a loving way um, with another believer. So I personally would not say you're wrong if you claimed one of these miraculous gifts, but I would say I think you're probably wrong um, if you claimed one. So it seems like miracles were ordained in Scripture at specific times for specific reasons. Um, and we should absolutely keep praying for God to do miracles. Um, this is a very important distinction. I'm not talking about miracles in general. I'm talking about the gifts of given to us for us to personally do the miracles uh, rather than God himself doing those miracles. Um, God absolutely does do miracles. Um, he, he converted all of us. That's a miracle. Um, what we're talking about is gifts of the Holy Spirit to us that would allow us to do similar. So a lot, a lot on work of the Holy Spirit there. God has given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He's at work all around us. Um, any questions on any of the work of the Holy Spirit before we move on to doctrine of salvation? So we learned a lot, and we spent four weeks talking about um, the doctrine of salvation, and we didn't even come close to plumbing the depths of everything that we could talk about on this topic. You can see the order of um, salvation there on your handout, so I'm going to try to do in 10 to 15 minutes what we did in four weeks. Um, and we'll just, yeah, we'll just go straight through these. So first, um, election. Salvation actually begins with God. It doesn't begin with us. Um, he chooses who he will save. This is an un uncomfortable doctrine for a lot of people. Um, and certainly I sympathize with how much that takes away any control I have. Um, but it is plain as day in Scripture that the Lord chooses who he's going to save. Um, so let me read Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. Um, and this is just one out of... So many passages we could choose to, to prove this in Scripture. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So he declared it from before the beginning. It was predestined. It happened because he decreed it, um, not because we did. So this election is unconditional, which means we did nothing to deserve it. Um, you'll never find scripture saying that our faith was the reason God chose us. That doesn't show up anywhere. Um, God's choice of the sinner, not the sinner's choice of Christ, is the ultimate cause of salvation and the primary cause of salvation. Did we choose Christ? Absolutely, we chose Christ. But we never would have done so if God had not chosen us first. Um, and the real mystery, if we know the depths of our sin, 
and the riches of his holiness and majesty, it's not why would God only save some, but rather why would God save any of us? Why would he save a single one of us? We all deserve death um, and recognize it's an infinite mercy of God to just save one sinner throughout all history. He would be infinitely merciful if he saved one sinner. And here we are, there's like 30 of us in this room. And I would venture to guess most of us know the Lord and he saved us. I mean, that's an infinite mercy of God that in Fayetteville, Arkansas, there's 30 people in one room that the Lord has brought from death to life. Um, so election. Second, the gospel invitation. So next in the order of salvation is the gospel invitation. Somebody shared the gospel with you, probably, um, or less likely, you, less, likely, less likely you read it by yourself in scripture. Most likely somebody shared it with you. Um, recognize God's ordinary means of saving sinners is through the proclamation of his spirit-inspired word by an evangelist. So Romans 10, 14 to 15 uh, makes that clear. Third, regeneration. Um, so we know from scripture that regeneration actually comes before we respond to the gospel with saving faith. So regeneration is an instantaneous event uh, in which the Holy Spirit works in us and enables us to have faith and to follow Christ. This is another aspect of salvation where we're totally passive. We don't contribute anything. Um, we cannot regenerate ourselves. God has to step in and do it himself. Regeneration, as we talked about earlier, um, is part of the work of the Holy Spirit. God acts and gives his people new hearts in regeneration. So we cannot have a soft heart and ears to hear until God gives them to us. True regeneration is then always followed by repentance and faith um, and a changed life, a repentant heart. Regeneration creates in us a state of heart and spirit that causes us to turn from our sin and commit ourselves to faith in Christ. So then fourth in the order of salvation, conversion, um, faith and repentance. So conversion consists of both repentance and faith. Um, walking down an aisle when you're converted is great, but walking away from sin is much better. Um, you place your faith in Christ, and if that faith is real, it repents of sin. It turns away from sin because you have a new heart that wants to turn away. So this word repent is all over the New Testament. It's all over Jesus' teaching. We must turn from sin, not just confess sin, but truly turn from it and walk away repeatedly. Um, and then faith is part of conversion as well. So to, to have faith in something, you have to know a little bit about the thing. So you have to know who Christ is, um, and you have to know what he's done in some sense. Um, yet we know that even the demons know Christ. Even the demons know who he is. But faith for us is different. It's about trusting that God is who he says he is uh, and will do what he says he'll do. He'll forgive us and redeem us. Adopt adoptify? Adopt us and sanctify us. We're sticking with adoptify. And he'll bring us home. So it's not the strength of our faith that saves us, uh, but rather the object of our faith. What are we putting our faith in? So Jesus is the object and he saves. So you might be holding on by a thread, um, but it's not the strength of your grip that saves you, uh, but rather who you're trusting in that does. And as you learn and understand, it isn't the strength of your faith, but the person, uh, you'll quickly find that it's not you who's holding on to Christ, but rather it's him who's holding on to you. Praise God. 
John 10, 28 um, is worth reading here. John 10, 28, Jesus is speaking. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Um, Praise God, he holds on to us. (coughs) Fifth uh, in that order, union with Christ. It's actually not on your handout, but Cliff did a good job uh, going into a little sidebar on union with Christ. So saving faith unites us to the Savior. Um, Being united to Christ means that believers are personally joined to the living, incarnate, crucified, resurrected, and reigning Jesus by his Holy Spirit through faith. So all of the benefits of salvation now flow to us um, by virtue of being united to the Savior. John Murray says this about the union of Christ, uh, union with Christ. Union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation, not only, not only in its application, but also in its once-for-all accomplishment in the finished work of Christ. So we're united with Christ. And then we're, uh, we move into justification. We're justified. So justification is a legal um, or judicial declaration by God that we are righteous in his sight, not because of our works, but because he imputes or credits that righteousness of uh, his son as our own. We are counted righteous in Christ. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, it's a gift of God and not our own doing that we might not boast. Then we're adopted. So adoption, um, God doesn't, justify you, cancel your debt, and then leave you at zero. He's not like, okay, we're square, see you later. God has decided to look at you, a criminal and a rebel against him, and not only save you from your sin and forget about your debt, uh, but then he goes one step further and says, I want this criminal who tried to steal my throne to be my child. Um, He pulls up a chair for you at the family table. He talks to you as if you were his son and had never made a mistake. And he plans to give you an inheritance beyond measure. So at the same moment, you gain freedom in justification and a father in adoption. That's glorious. This leads well into sanctification. Because when a child is adopted, hopefully they start to look more and more like their parents. Um, So sanctification is basically the death of sin over time and growth in holiness over time. Very quickly after you become a Christian, you recognize repentance is not a one-time thing. uh, And you have to do it over and over and over again. It's ongoing. We continue to look more like Christ and repent, uh, and we are being sanctified. Our bodies are trying to catch up to the reality of justification, um, to the reality of our righteousness in Christ. Then perseverance. Um, we We learned that all those who Christ begins to save, he saves to the end. Um, there are no exceptions. John six thirty eight through 40, Jesus says he will not lose even one of his sheep. Um, so if you are his, you will remain his. So those who, quote, fall away or deconstruct away from the faith um, are actually proving, sadly, that they were never in the faith to begin with. They were not one of his sheep, which is heartbreaking. But Christ can't lose his sheep. So those who are his will remain his. We talked about death. Um, talked about the fact that we all die. It's a really difficult reality because it was never meant for us to, to do so. Uh, and it's because of our sin that we die. It's not primarily because our heart stops beating or our brain doesn't get enough oxygen. The reason we biologically die 
is because we've sinned against the Holy God. But because of God's grace in Christ, the Christian is immediately with God at the moment of death, immediately in the presence of God. There is no waiting for us. Um, death has lost its sting for the Christian because the sting of death is sin, and Christ has overcome sin and death. And then finally, we talked about glorification. So the intermediate state when we die, where we're immediately with God, but separated from our, uh, our body, is not our final hope. Our final hope is the reunification of our souls with our bodies, our glorified bodies, on the last day. Um, our new bodies will be without sin, without sickness, without sadness, uh, in the presence of God forever. So that is a very fast rundown of four weeks of content. Any questions on the doctrine of salvation before we move on to doctrine of the church or comments? Doctrine of the church. Um, when we started talking about the doctrine of the church, we first defined who makes up the church. So who is the church actually made up of? No longer like the Old Testament covenant, um, the church is now just made up of believers. It's just believers in the church. It's not made up of believers and their families, but rather just the believers themselves. Romans 9.6 says, Not all who descended from Israel are Israel. So the church is a fulfillment, in a sense, of the promises that God has made to Israel. But secondly, the church is Christ's church. It's not our church. Um, UBC is not our church. It's Christ's church. Matthew 16, Jesus tells Peter, I will build my church. Um, so his blood was shed for the founding of this church. And now he invites us into this fellowship, this family, his own body, his church. Um, so being a part of this church means we have duties and responsibilities far more important than our jobs, even our families, our futures, all. So there's a lot of biblical images to describe a church. Can anybody think of some of the biblical images used to describe a church? The bride. Mm -hmm. The bride adorned for her husband. Yeah, that's great. The body. Yeah, Christ's body. Temple, dwelling place, yeah. So here's some categories that we talked through. Um, family images. So in 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2, it says, we should treat older men like fathers, younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, and younger women like sisters. Jesus then calls his followers and his, excuse me, he calls his followers his brothers and sisters um, in Matthew 12. Um, and then, as Susan mentioned, we're also in a different family metaphor, the bride of Christ as the church. You can look to Ephesians 5 and elsewhere there, Revelation as well. Um, also, agricultural images are used to describe the church. So you think about um, John 15, 16, I am the vine and you are the branches. 1 Corinthians 3 as well, the church is compared to a field of crops that was planted by man but grown by God. And then, yeah, as Jeremy mentioned, building or temple images. So 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5 says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then finally, as Owen mentioned, um, the body of Christ. So we talked about this a little bit in the Holy Spirit. 
section. We are the body and each of us is a different part. I think this is my favorite, my personal favorite metaphor for the church. Um, so we should strive for unity as we're all one body working together. And we should appreciate the diversity as each of us is a different part of that body. Um, yeah, that's just a great metaphor. Moving on from those, though, we talked about the church visible versus the church invisible. Um, so we see the church imper- imperfectly, imperfectly, goodness, I'm struggling this morning, <laughs> through human eyes, and we make mistakes. So the church visible is what we can see, um, and we, we certainly make mistakes. We might let in somebody who's not a Christian um, into the church and have to exercise church discipline. God sees the church as it truly is, Right? church invisible, and he is not deceived by those who are Christians, or not Christians, making their way in. Then we talked about the local versus the universal church. Um, So Christians are called to be involved in local churches. Um, It's clear in Hebrews. This is where uh, the one another commands of scripture come most alive, uh, is in our local church context. Um, But Christians are also part of a universal church that doesn't yet gather, but one day will gather all together. In multiple services. Just kidding. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm kidding. But praise God, the, the church universal will gather um, together. And I'll be at the 930, so, okay. <laughs> then we mentioned the church militant and triumphant. Um, the church militant and triumphant. So we're engaged in spiritual warfare constantly. That's the church militant. But we ultimately will be triumphant. Then we talked about some of the attributes of the church. So how do you characterize a church? First, it's one. So we have unity in Christ uh, in the church. Second, it's holy. Church is holy because Christ's righteousness makes the church holy. Third, it's Catholic. Um, Not Roman Catholic, but did you say amen to not Roman Catholic? Uh, Both of those. Okay, great. Yeah, we're Catholic but not Roman Catholic. Yep. Yeah, amen. Yep. So what that means is it's universal in nature. Um, there really is one church despite all our denominations. Fourth, um, it's apostolic. So the church is built on the foundation of the apostles um, and on their teachings. Then we talked about the marks of a true church. So what makes a true church versus a false church? And then just to give everybody categories, like there's true and false churches, and then within true, there's a spectrum of like healthier versus unhealthier. But what actually makes a church a true church Um, Historically, Protestants have said it's the right preaching of the word and right administration of the sacraments. Those are the two things you need to have a true church versus a false church. Um, So again, there are other signs we'd look to to for like relative health within a true church. Um, But these are what we'd look to for whether a church is really a church. Do they preach the word? Do they practice the sacraments? Um, You have to preach God's word if you want to call yourself a church. Um, You are not a church if you don't prioritize and believe God's word and preach it to honor him and build up his people. So this doesn't mean you only preach expositionally. It just means there's a priority on giving God's people his word. There has to be. You also need to practice the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, the sacraments. Um, So there are different views on baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's where even some of our denominational splits come. Um, But... Uh, and our churches are clearly outlined in our statement of faith. Um, but you need to practice baptism in the Lord's Supper. Along with this kind of naturally comes church discipline. So when you're uh, fencing the table at the Lord's Supper, 
and, and saying who can and can't partake. Um, fencing the table from those who are not believers but call themselves believers means that church discipline is, is kind of uh, intertwined with practicing the sacraments rightly. And then we briefly wrapped up talking about different forms of church government. So we're a congregational church um, because we recognize Jesus gave congregations the final authority, or excuse me, the right to exercise authority over their own church, not a body above them or a person above them. Um, congregations have the authority to do that. Um, and Cliff talked about a few other types of church government as well. Any quick questions on doctrine of the church before we wrap up? talking about eschatology. Uh, could you give an example of like the line between something that's like not a true church versus just something that's very unhealthy or true church? Yeah, I think it's really tricky. I don't know that we can do it perfectly. Um, but I think, like for example, uh, the Mormon church preaches a false gospel. Like they don't prioritize the word. They're preaching a gospel that so clearly includes works um, that you have to call it a false church. Um, and yet there may be some believers uh, who despite their church's teaching know the gospel because they read the word. Um, so it doesn't mean that everybody who attends a false church is, not, is necessarily an unbeliever, um, but it's tricky. And I don't know that we can know it perfectly. Anybody wanna add on to that? Yeah. Yeah, Jehovah's Witness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have an example of that in First John, where he says anybody who denies that Christ came in the flesh is not a believer. So that would be an example where even when it says preach God's word, it doesn't just mean preach the Bible, but even like preach Christ rightly hmm. from the scriptures. Yeah. So if you found like a church that was preaching Christ didn't come in the flesh, you could say not a true church. That would be an example like in scripture. I think you could say. Yeah. I think there can be churches, though, like that edge, for instance, on health, wealth, and prosperity, but not saying um, you necessarily will be wealthy if you're a Christian, but kind of this Christians will be happy and you'll have a prosperous life sort of thing that still in some way preach the word, still in some way practice the sacraments such that it might be wrong for us to call them a false church. Yep. And yet we could clearly say this is a very unhealthy church and we would not recommend anyone attend that church. Yeah. Or when you have, or not denominations, but when you have other supposedly Christian bodies that have additional places of revelation. Yeah, you know, you definitely. Mormon, you know, they have those four standard works. Yep. So they, they do use the Bible, but then they have three other things that are very important. Yep. The final analysis, generally they top the scriptures. Yeah, they do. And then the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, and, and you know, there's other groups. And in the Word of Faith, I mean, yes, they do open the Bible, but a lot of times it's a whole lot more what their leader says. Hmm. As he looks into it and he gets what he wants, and then it's the Word of Knowledge. Or, and then, so you, generally, how they stand on the Word of God gives you a yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So right preaching of the word. It, I mean, there's a lot of emphasis on that right preaching of the word, not just opening the Bible, um, but preaching it correctly. Sorry. The, the last thing I was. I know we're reading the Nicene Creed this morning. Like, oh, nice. Those are helpful 
parameters too for some of this question, just as you're like reflecting on that in the Senate survey. Yeah, that's great. Um, so again, eschatology, the quickest of the sections. I know it's 10.07, um, but we just touched on eschatology. Sam did a great job covering this. If you weren't here, um, that's fine. would highly recommend listening through his two sections on eschatology um, or talking to me. So eschatology is the study of the end. Eschatology can get pretty heated pretty quickly between Christians. Uh, and Sam did a great job explaining kind of the spectrum of different beliefs uh, while keeping us all unified on the glorious of truth of Christ's return and reign. Um, so here are a few of those things that Christians are all united on about the end. First, there will be a sudden, visible, bodily return of Christ. He's coming back. It's not a spiritual coming back. Scripture makes this clear in so many places. 1 Thessalonians 4, Matthew 24, Revelation 1, James 5, Titus 2. Jesus is coming bodily back. Second, the time of his coming is unknown. We don't know when he's coming back. Not even the Son knew it, Matthew 24, 36. So you don't know it. You don't know when he's coming back. The guy on TV doesn't know when he's coming back. If somebody tells you they know when Christ is coming, run. Run away. They don't know. They are lying. The Son himself did not know it. Christians should eagerly await Christ's return. That's the third thing. We should be excited and eagerly anticipating Christ's return. So if you don't, if you're not excited, I wonder why. Um, perhaps it's because you hold too much weight in this world. Um, you hold on to this world too dearly. It's all going to burn. Pray that the Lord would create in you an eager heart for his return. Fourth, a final judgment is coming. So there's a real final judgment approaching. Christ will be the judge. Unbelievers will be judged according to their works uh, and condemned to eternal punishment. Believers will also be judged into eternal life on the basis of Christ's righteousness and then also on the basis of our works, um, as Scripture says. And then finally, new heavens and new earth. So the culmination of it all. Uh, a new heavens and new earth are established. God dwelling with his people in their glorified bodies. Um, we talked a little bit about different views on the end times, um, and Sam gave us kind of a spectrum of beliefs. So on one side, you have uh, those who lean toward discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, toward a dispensational understanding of Scripture. And then on the other side, there's those who lean toward continuity, um, which would be a more covenantal understanding uh, of Scripture. And it really comes down to if Israel is distinct from the church or if the church is now Israel. And that's where that middle line splits the spectrum. Are they two peoples or are they one people? Um, and that leads into different views on the millennium. So Sam quickly walked through three main views on the millennium, premillennial, amillennial, and postmillennial. So those things matter, certainly. You can go listen to Sam explain the differences between them, um, but I'm not going to take it any further. Uh, if you'd like to know more of the differences, definitely talk um, to me or Sam or Cliff. Uh, and I'd love to just wrap this up in unity instead of talking about the differences between all these views. I um, would love to wrap us up in unity by reading Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Uh, I don't know that I could get sick of ever reading this passage. Um, and I think as I get older, this is just going to be even more and more impactful. Um, Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Again, I, I think you could read this every day of your life, and it would be beneficial says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So praise God that he is coming uh, and he will make all things right. Lord, come quickly. Um, Let's pray. We can close. Father, thank you for your word and for how much we've been able to dive into it this semester. Um, Lord, thank you for how clear you've just made all these things about yourself uh, in your word for us to study. We pray that um, this topic would motivate us to love you more, um, to walk in righteousness and to forsake and turn away from sin. And uh, Lord, we pray that we would just be in awe um, of who you are and that we would eagerly await um, the time when you do come and you take all of us um, to be with you. In Jesus' name, amen.